Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And kids, you can start making your way to your classes. And uh, remember, for the middle school kids, we have a class for you. So if you're in middle school and want to head that way, and I have seen the fa that middle schoolers, I know you have brownies and other things in your class. So I'm going to wrap this up quickly, and I'll come with you. <laughs> And for the rest of us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 1, I want you to think about, do you remember the last sleepless night that you had? And do you remember the cause of it? Last night. Now, so some of you, it was last night. Now, actually, in Trinity, this past fall, uh, this fall, and right now we're in the midst of a baby boom. So uh, this would be a good time to plug our need for nursery volunteers. And so if you hadn't seen Crystal uh, Cruz, their uh, third baby girl was born on Monday. Uh, and so uh, healthy. And so, th I mean, their last sleepless night was, you know, last night. And so some of you didn't know what that's like. But think about the last sleepless night you had that was not necessarily because you were maybe tending to the helpless needs of another human, um, but was because of your own fear or anxiety. You were, you were afraid. You were worried about something. You know, if you think about our life, most days in our life just kind of roll on with a rhythmic sameness where we get up, we have our coffee, we do our morning kind of thing, we go to work, we come home, eat dinner, kind of a, a, a regular rhythm. And then every so often something happens in our life where the, the rhythm is shattered and then we just get stopped in our tracks. And then we, it can be, um, you know, it can be the day. And often it, it, it's connected with you found something out. So you found out that you didn't get the job you were hoping for. You were going to be losing the job you had. You found out uh, maybe you were pregnant and it was unexpected. You found out the test results came back. And it leaves you in a state of kind of bewilderment. You're in this fog of uncertainty. You don't know uh, what to do, where to go, what to say, how to respond. And what we're going to look at this morning is in our story this morning in verse 20, we have Joseph, who is the, the, in essence, the adopted father of Jesus. In verse 20, he lies down, in essence, for a sleepless night. He's in the midst of this fog of uncertainty. He's disoriented. He's dazed. He's confused. He has all of these questions about what's about to happen in his life. Has he been betrayed? Has, will he be publicly humiliated and shamed? How should he respond? So he lies down in verse 20 in this fog of uncertainty, and then he rises up in verse 24 with clarity, with confidence, with direction. And so he has this movement from a place of just deep fear to faith in just one night. And so what I want us to kind of wrestle with is what brought him there? What happened in that night that brought him from a place of fear to a place of faith, from a place of confusion to confidence? And what brought him there actually might surprise you. It might not be the thing you would think. So you might think in moments like that, you know, what do we need? We need someone maybe to pull strings for us. Maybe we need someone to um, articulate things, explain things. And actually what he gets is he gets a theological lecture on the identity of two of the three members of the Trinity. 
And that's what brings him from a place of confusion uh, to confidence. So that's actually what we're going to walk, and we're going to walk through that. So hopefully if you come in here this morning in a sense of day's confusion, maybe it can help shed light for you so you can leave with a little more, uh, a little less fear and a little more faith, maybe a little less confusion and a little more confidence. So we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. And in order for him to kind of move through that journey, he's got a, it's, it's kind of a three-step process. He'll need to learn that there's one job, two names, three obstacles. And that's what's going to get him to that place. So let's start verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And then he called his name Jesus. So here Joseph moves from this place of fear to a place of faith, and there's kind of three-step process. And what I want you to see is we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew's Gospel is a training manual. It's probably the best Gospel. It's the teaching Gospel. It's meant to teach us what does it mean to live the, the life of a disciple. And disciple just means a follower, a learner, an apprentice, someone who is looking to Jesus and saying, I am... Uh, going to follow you through this life. And it's kind of the training manual, or Matthew is a training manual for the life of discipleship. And what Matthew does, so every chapter, uh, every section, every story is meant to teach. But Matthew is a brilliant teacher because he uses both direct and indirect communication. He teaches with stories, with pictures, and then commands and instruction. And in chapter one, the goal of chapter one is to give you a picture of what is the main plot of history and who are the main characters. So chapter one is introducing us to the, the Trinity, that the, the story we're entering is the story about this triune God, God the Father who's overseeing history, God the Holy Spirit who's bringing the life of Christ into the world, and then God the Son, Jesus, who's going to save his people um, from their sins. So chapter one is kind of painting a picture, and uh, maybe a way you could summarize is chapter one is telling us that this is God's good world, it's been ruined by sin, it will be redeemed by the Son and then be recreated by the Holy Spirit. That's the story we're in, and those are the main characters. So he's going to teach us about the Holy Spirit and then the Son, Jesus. But he does it in the context of this real-life difficult situation that Joseph finds himself in. So if Joseph is going to move to a place from fear to faith, he's got to first know that there's one job, the one job. The first thing that I want you to see is he's going to teach us and teach Joseph about what the, who the Holy Spirit is and what he has come to do, that he has one job, and it's his job to bring into the world the life of Christ. 
He brings the life of Christ into the world. Did you notice that the Holy Spirit's mentioned twice? First in verse 18, it says, Now Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit that brings the child into, um, into the world. And now we're giving a window, we're giving a window into what's going on kind of behind the spiritual scenes that Joseph doesn't get. So we get a picture in verse 18 of what's happening. He doesn't know these things uh, as yet. And then it's repeated again a couple verse later, verses later when the angel speaks to him. The child that's within her is conceived from, in verse 20, from the Holy Spirit. And I notice in verse 18, it says, now the birth of Jesus is in this way. It's really kind of an interesting word. That same word for Genesis, the Genesis of Jesus, the beginning. The same word actually from genealogy in chapter 1, the book of verse 1, the book of the Genesis, the, the beginning, the birth. Birth is not really the best word, but we don't really have a better word for it. It's the, it's the, the Genesis of, the creation of, and what it's trying to put you in the context of, you know, original creation, the Holy Spirit was there hovering first creation, and now here this second great act of recreation. The Holy Spirit is there working. And so what this is telling us is that the source of the life of Christ in any human life is the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, he is the one who brings the life of Jesus into our lives personally. So sometimes we kind of get hung up on the miraculous nature of the virgin birth, and it is a remarkable story. You know, I'm reminded of the story with C.S. Lewis. Uh, one Christmas, he was in his room at Oxford College, and one of his colleagues, there were Christmas. Uh, Christmas carolers were singing in the streets, and one of his colleagues kind of rolled his eyes and said, oh, aren't you glad we're not the kind of people who believe a virgin can give birth? And Lewis responded, he said, um, I think they know that virgins don't give birth. That's why they're singing about the one who did. <laughs> And so there's a miraculous nature. This is unusual. But with the kind of the theological reality, what Matthew is painting pictorially, and then Paul will tell us propositionally, is that the beginning of the life of Christ in any human is the central work of the Holy Spirit. So that's where it begins. It doesn't begin with our initiative. It begins in the work of the Holy Spirit. In one sense, every person in this room who is a Christian has been the object of a virgin birth, where the Holy Spirit miraculously planted the life of Christ in, in you. And so we all, this is the, the reality of the Christian life. And one of, the things, one of the things Joseph has to learn is that the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to bring the life of Jesus into our world. That's his job. And so at, at, at the original creation, we were made in the image of God. And now for recreation, we're being remade into the image of Christ. And so the one job of the Holy Spirit, his primary job, is to recreate us into the image of Christ. Christ formed in us. Bring him into the world. So what does that mean? How can that be helpful for Joseph at this time? Because it's in times of doubt and disorientation, we have to always remember that the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to make us more like Christ. It's not to always make our life pleasant and smooth, and often remaking us in the image of Christ can be painful. 
It can be confusing. It can be disorienting. But we have to remember that's his one job. His goal is to make us more like Christ. Now, if that's his goal, to make us more like Christ, if that's his work, then we need to know, all right, well, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? And that's the second thing he's going to learn. And what Joseph is given is he's given two names that we constantly need to hold into our mind as we understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. His names tell us about his person, who he is, and then his work, what he came to do. So look at the first thing where he says, starting in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's these two names, Jesus, kind of his human name. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to save his people. And then Emmanuel, it means he's God with us. So as we think about his person and his work, there's two things we're always kind of having to hold together, that he's both his humanity, he's Jesus, the human, and then he's God, he's God with us. And G.K. Chesterton, he said this is kind of like the dance of orthodoxy. The dance of orthodoxy is you hold on to two things that seem to kind of not necessarily be contra- contradictory, but you can't understand how they always hold together. And you grip them and you just let them take you and shake you wherever they go. And these are two things we hold on to about Jesus. We hold on to his humanity and divinity. He's, he's God with us. He's both. And it's in these names that we get a description of who he is and what he's going to do. Notice the first name, Jesus, the name Jesus, or Yeshua, Joshua. It's named Joshua, and it means Yahweh saves. God will save. He's the one who will save. It's a basic Old Testament confession that it's the Lord who saves. But notice what he says. So he's going to be the one who saves, but then who is he going to save? It's his people. So he has a people, and one of the key themes all throughout Matthew, and one of the challenges for us is because just as 21st century Westerners were so individualistic in our thinking, he's come for a people, which is not less than saving individuals, but it's so much more than saving individuals. He's come for a people. And one of the great things about the way the whole gospel is structured and shaped is he's, he's, he's calling out, he's forming, he's saving, he's redeeming, he's renewing, he's reshaping. Shaping a society, a people. He's making them new. But then notice, what does he save them from? Now, in one sense, the most important question you can ever answer is, um, I need to be saved from, and then whatever you fill in the blank there. Now, notice when he's coming, how do you expect that most people in Matthew or Joseph's world would, how would they fill in that blank? He's going to save his people from the Roman oppressors, the evil overlords, the excessive taxation from the Roman government. He's going to save his people from the impurity of the temple priest who are are, um, desecrating the temple. He's going to save us from... You know, just think about this year, we're entering into a year of political campaigning. So as you just hear things, just listen, almost every, every political ad will be a tacit declaration, you need to be saved from. 
and this is the Savior. And so just think about the things that can get plugged in to what we need to be saved from. And every kind of group and party will fill in the blank with different things. We need to be saved from. But notice what, what the angel says. He's going to save his people from their sins. Their sins. He's got to save them from, not from another person's sins or another thing or this other group. He's going to save them from their sins. And we're going to see this worked out, uh, the things that he has to save them from. You know, at, uh, at Wycliffe, the Bible translators, you know, you go in and they're little, uh, I forget what they called the... What's that place? The Discovery Center? And uh, you can look at all the different translations. One of the fun ones to uh, read is the Jesus book, which is the, the, the pigeon Hawaiian, Hawaiian uh, translation. And I like how they translate this verse in that. It says, uh, she going to, oh, I'm not going to get the accent right. <laughs> it's harder now when I try and actually say it. All right. She's going to born one boy, and you're going to name him Jesus, because he's going to take his people out of all that kind of bad stuff they do. <laughs> That's a pretty good translation. <laughs> he's going to save, he's going to rescue them from all that bad stuff that they do, that they do, that we do. He's got to save us from us. We're our first greatest problem. Before we can point to anyone or anything else, we need to be saved from us. That's his first thing. He's the Savior. And the next one is he's Emmanuel. I mean, he's God with us. He's Emmanuel. And one kind of helpful conceptual categories to think about Emmanuel is actually think about the name Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not like Jesus' last name. That's his job. That's his title. Um, that's what he came to do. Actually, some of our last names are not really last names. They're originally jobs. You think about like Smith. Last name, if your last name is Smith, that's because you, you were the Smiths. You were the blacksmiths. You were, uh, our last name is Bailey. We, that means in Ireland and Scotland, the Baileys were the bailiffs. We were the prison guards. So you watch out. I'm watching you. <laughs> But Christ is not, not necessarily his last name. This is his, his occupation, his job. And it, it, it uh, is looking back, if you were here last week, and we saw how Matthew sets up the first three segments of the history of redemption, moving through the age of establishing the, the priesthood, because the priests were the, um, the, the people who it's their job to bring us into the presence of the living Lord. Uh, um, our relationship with the Lord, because sin has been broken, and the priest usher us into to his presence. You know, it's their job to help us understand what it means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to worship him in a way that brings him honor and hallows his name. That's the job of the priest. And then the second kind of era was the era of the kings. The era of the kings, it was their job to create a society where we could live in the light of God's justice and righteousness. Because the sin, another great effect of sin is it doesn't just break our relationship with God, it breaks our relationship with one another. It's why we have of, um, broken society, and the king was to create an environment in which people could flourish. 
And then you had the third great segment of the prophets who the prophets were established to call the people back to live in the light of what the Lord has said in both of those arenas, to worship and love him with all their heart and to love their neighbor as themselves. And so when you think Christ, it's because Christ is the one who's going to fulfill all three of those offices. He's come to be the ultimate one that's going to be the ultimate priest that brings us back into God's presence. He's the ultimate king who, can, who will teach us and create a society in which people ultimately can flourish, and he's going to remake and make all things new, wiping away every tear from every eye. And then he's the one who gives us the ultimate authoritative word from the Lord so we can live in a way that honors him and brings... Um, flourishing into our world. So the Christ is that, that trifold act of his work. And what uh, Joseph, if Joseph is going to move from a place of being fearful, afraid, uh, to a place of confident faith, he needs to know that the one job the Holy Spirit has is to bring Christ in the world, and he's taken a part of that. And then this is what Christ has come to do. He's come to save his people from their sins, and he's going to experience and be a part of that. But now that's not the last thing, and the last thing I want you to see is in three, is there's going to be three big obstacles that Joseph is going to have to overcome. And you just kind of get a sense, notice maybe the most pregnant word in this story. You get it? (laughs) Is in verse 20, when the angel says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. And just emot- kind of imaginatively enter into Joseph's life. Think about all the things that he had to be afraid of. What would he need to overcome so he could rise with confidence and go forward? At least three things. He would have to, um, he would have to be willing to, or what he's going to have to do is not be afraid, and he's going to have to ignore the people's laughter. He's going to have to accept the Lord's adventure, and then he's going to have to admit that he's a sinner. He's going to do all three of those things. These are the three great obstacles that he has to overcome so he can rise with faith. First, he's going to have to ignore people's laughter. You know, this is an honor and a shame culture. And when this happens, one of the things that he obviously will be most afraid of is what are people going to say? Like, will I be humiliated? This scandal now will stain us and me for the rest of our life. And this actually lingers throughout Jesus' life. You get some of the sarcasm um, when there's an episode where the Pharisees are attacking Jesus. And they say, hey, we weren't born in sexual iniquity. Because they they knew this part of the story. And as, as you can imagine, not many people believed Mary or Joseph. And in fact, they might sneer and snicker and say, the only thing worse than a teenage girl trying to cover up her own sexual infidelity, the only thing worse is the fool who believes her. And so he knows he's entering into a world that he's going to be mocked and laughed at and sneered. And there's a way he can kind of sweep everything under the rug and keep it quiet and things can just go on. And that's what he initially wants to do. He was a just man, didn't want to lash out, but just let's just quietly make this all go away. And then he said, no, you can't do that. You have to own it. You have to not be afraid of the public uh, shaming, their laughter. And in many ways, his life now is going to be utterly different than everything he had thought, hoped, or dreamed. And if you think about your own life, think about how many... How often do we make decisions that are often driven by the fear of other people's perception? 
And one of the things, Joseph, he's going to have to overcome that, have to have the courage to not be afraid. But the next thing is he's got to have the courage to be willing to uh, accept the adventure. In one sense, he's going to lose the final say of his life. You get this in a sense where now the angel says, and you will name him. You're going to name him Jesus. That's the first step of obedience for Joseph is he's got to rise, he's got to take Mary, and then he's got to name Jesus. Because in this world, it was the right and responsibility of the firstborn son. They would take on the name of the father because it was their responsibility to perpetuate the family line and the family business. And they would be um, kind of overseeing the family. And so not being able to name him, Joseph, is an incredible act of giving up control, authority, things that he would think are his rights. And it's the first in a long process of saying, right now you're actually following him. And you have to accept the adventure. You know, Joseph's life is about to become so much more adventurous than he ever thought imagined. He's now about to have to take a late night trip where they're going to have to, they're going to have to go to Bethlehem, then they're going to have to flee Bethlehem, then go to Egypt, then come back and then be in hiding, then end up in Nazareth. His life is about to get turned upside down. Best be willing to accept that adventure. And I think most people... One of the, if we're honest, one of the fears we have is a fear uh, to really accept the adventure of where he'll take us. You know, this, if you all saw over Thanksgiving, uh, Cynthia sang the national anthem at the Magic Game. And uh, a lot of people ask, like, is, has she ever done anything like that before? And uh, the answer is yes. She's actually sung the national anthem at one other public event. And it was at a, I won't say this right, motocross rally in northern Kentucky around about 2010-2011. So it was a big motocross rally and uh, early one Saturday morning she kicked off this massive motocross weekend singing the national anthem. And uh, and that might surprise you because maybe we don't look like the motocross uh, kind of folks. And, uh, but the way this got kind of worked out, connected, is one of the, the kids in our church uh, at the time in Kentucky was huge into motocross, and he was trying to, like, you know, make it into the X Games, and then there was um, this huge kind of event that was happening, and then one of the local churches were all getting together to sponsor um, this person I had never heard of, but his name is Brian Deegan, and uh, so if you're not familiar with the motocross scene, uh, Brian Deegan is the founder of the Metal Militia, and he's the most decorated motocross rider in X Games history. And uh, he was coming to this big kind of youth event rally because uh, he um, had experienced a pretty remarkable conversion several years before. And he was coming, and the churches were getting together. He was going to kind of share his testimony. And I remember uh, one thing that really struck So Cynthia was the honorary. She sang the national anthem at that big event to kick it off. So she's got uh, So that's how that all connected, <laughs> if you were wondering. <laughs> 
And uh, so Brian Deegan gets up to share his testimony, and he um, he was talking about how that he was raised in kind of their word, their tagline was hard style. And you see, you know, he's kind of covered in tattoos, and you can see, like he's living the hard style life. And he says we were hard style, we were um, hard living, hard drinking, kind of going after girls, hard racing, hard. It was hard style living. And said so then three things happened that just wrecked my life. The first thing that happened is I got my, my girlfriend, uh, I got my girlfriend pregnant and she refused to have an abortion. And then the second thing, and I actually have a picture, Luke, all right, so Luke, bring up this picture, but close your eyes and do not look. So Virginia, Luke is not allowed to look at this picture because I don't want any bad ideas. Don't try this at home, Luke. But this is Brian Deegan actually doing a backflip on the motorcycle. And uh, he made this attempt, but if you're wondering, like, you know, what can go wrong, a backflip on a motorcycle? Um, well, at the 2006 X Games, he tried the backflip on the motorcycle and didn't make it. Crashed. And not, it wasn't just the shattering kind of, of the body that broke him. It was the public humiliation. He failed on the largest and grandest stage he had be, ever been on in the 2006 X Games. And he said that took him to this incredibly low place. And then the third thing that shattered his life is he started going to church with his girlfriend. And then there at church, he entered into this community that loved him in a way he'd never experienced, and he encountered the gospel, and then the Holy Spirit did his great work of implanting the life of Christ in him, and he was reborn. He was made new. But the, the thing that stuck me from his testimony is he said, you know, when I was like the metal militia, I thought we were living hard style. He goes, that stuff was so easy. Any knucklehead can chase girls on a motorcycle. He said, you want to know what hard style is? Hard style is following Christ. Hard style is having the courage to admit to your wife you're wrong when you know you're wrong. Hard style. What, what is the hard style life? The hard style life is being quick to listen and slow to speak. The hard style life is not keeping a record of wrongs. The hard style of life is loving in such a way where you're, you're patient, you're compassionate, you're uh, joyfully self-giving and sacrificial. That's the hard style life. That's the life of real adventure. And the question for Joseph now is, is he going to embark on a life of real adventure, a real hard style life? Because the, and if we're honest, probably one of the hardest things we have to do is actually own the fact that we are sinners and we need a savior. And like for Brian Deegan, he said, on the one hand, I needed no one to convince me I was a sinner. I kind of knew that. But then as I was grow in this relationship with Christ, I actually see how deep that really goes. And so the question is, do we have the courage then to admit that we're a sinner? You know, it's like the great American philosopher John Wayne. And she wore a yellow ribbon, which he said was his best acting performance of all of them. And one of his lines in that movie is, never apologize, never explain. It only shows weakness. And that's exactly right. And then the question that Jesus' life brings to us that Joseph has to face and we all have to face is, do you have the courage to admit that you're a sinner and need a savior? That Jesus isn't just some little add-on supplement. You actually need him. Years ago, about the same time uh, when we were in Kentucky, this got illustrated to me in a really powerful way in a TJ Maxx. 
So I was, I don't even know why, I was in a TJ Maxx and just kind of shopping, and this was before we had kids, and, you know, part of, I mean, part of my life as a preacher is, is searching for illustrations, so when I see good illustrations, I will pay cash money on the spot for good illustrations. And so I was in TJ Maxx, and there was this little girl who, um, you know, this was before we had kids, and there was a little girl who looked just like Boo from Monsters, Inc. You know, she had like the pigtail, the brown pigtail, black hair, pigtails, and was just so bubbly and bouncy. Her name was Molly, and she was turning what could be a drab day shopping in TJ Maxx into joy for everyone. And she, you know, it's kind of that age, about three-ish, where it's just a constant flow of words, and there's actually no break between what pops into her head and what comes into her mouth, just flowing. And it was delightful. She was just, everything she saw, oh, mommy, look, there's a star on that sock, a star. And it just starts going. And about, you know, halfway through, she's playing this, this rhyming game where everything she sees, she starts to just rhyme. Like, oh, look, a cat, a bat, a hat. And she's just rhyming. And you can tell, you know, I understand now. But mom completely shut down. Like, she had not heard a word that Molly had said the entire time we were in the active wear of the men's department. <laughs> and uh, Molly's just going. And then uh, Molly sees something. I don't know exactly. It was something in the family of duck. <laughs> and so I thought, this, this could be interesting. <laughs> Let's see where this goes. And so she just starts rhyming things that, you know, sound like duck. And then she comes across one word that snaps mommy out of her revelry. And mommy instantly locks onto Molly and says, what did you say? And Molly has no idea what she has said for the last probably 48 hours, much less that way. And my, Molly was uh, uh, and, and Ma, like instantly, that is no longer a shopping cart. It now is a judge's bench. And mommy is a prosecuting attorney. And she goes to like, what did you say? Where did you hear that word? Did you hear? And she starts rolling and Molly's just panicking. I don't know. And, uh, and then, uh, so like I now know that I would give the parents a moment to have their, you know, kind of parental discipline and mo uh, moment. I have more dignity now. Then I just wanted to watch and was like, I wonder where this is going to go. <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah, Molly, Molly, tell us. What, I mean, where did you hear that? <laughs> and... Um, and so mom's on the attack, and Molly is panicking and starts to freeze. I, I don't know. I don't know. And then Molly, I don't know what the name, but somebody. Then mommy goes after. It's like JoJo. Did you hear that from JoJo? I bet you did. It was him. I know it was him. And I don't know who that. I mean, it could be stepbrother, friend from daycare, neighbor. Mommy does not like JoJo. And now JoJo is the reason why Molly has just said what she said, and mommy is on the attack. And now Molly's panicking. She's like, I don't know what I did, but now all of a sudden, I'm in trouble. JoJo's in trouble. Everything's spiraling downhill. And then Molly just starts to break down and she starts to cry. And she says, no, 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 mommy. I didn't hear it there. It came from my own heart. <laughs> and I had that same experience. And maybe I should have had more courage because I wanted to take Molly's little hand and say, yes, sweet girl, it did. That's exactly right. It came from your own heart because our hearts are twisted and broken. And sometimes things we don't even understand or know can come flowing out of it. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus loves your own heart and his heart was broken. So your heart can be put back together again and you could be made new. So have the courage and joy to admit I'm a sinner, but he's a savior. 
And you know what mommy did in that moment? She actually got more angry than she did when she heard what Molly said. And then instantly, this wall went up and she said, do not say that. That is not true. It did not come from your own heart. And they stormed out. And it struck me in that moment, she didn't have the courage to admit that her heart's broken and that she needs a savior. And Joseph, he's going to have to come to the point, if he's ever going to rise up out of fear into faith, he's going to have to own the fact that he's a sinner and his heart is broken and he needs a savior. And even this little child that he's going to dedicate his life to protecting and providing uh, that he in this season in one sense is going to be the savior of, that person is going to have to save him. He's got to have the courage to admit it and to own it. And you think about what are the reasons that we're afraid to really admit that we're sinners? Maybe we wonder, you know, does this mean that I'm a failure? Does this mean I won't be loved? Does this mean that I'm broken? Yes, it means you're broken, but you're broken, but you're loved because you're broken. And it means that this is the only path where you could be made new again. So if you're going to rise up, which of these three things that Joseph had to overcome do you need to overcome today? Maybe you need some courage to overcome the fact that if you follow this Christ, people are going to laugh at you. And you're worried about public perception. Well, go to him and seek his courage. Or maybe you need the, the encouragement to uh, follow the adventure. Maybe he wants you to um, sacrifice something or do something in your life to follow his adventure. Or maybe you need the courage to admit and own that you're a sinner and that you need him as a savior to remake you and make you new. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have the freedom to not blame shift, to not excuse make, to not finger point, but we thank you for the liberating power of the Holy Spirit who implants the life of Jesus in us and the liberating power of that Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. And so we ask that you would help us to, to know that and to experience that. Pray for anyone who's come in here this morning and they've come in disoriented. They've come in discouraged. Pray that you would give them a ray of hope from the truth that your, your spirit is working in them, something greater. Pray that you would give them confidence in the names of your son, who his names are God with us, and that Jesus is the Savior. And I pray if there are any obstacles that our faith needs to overcome, that you would help us by your spirit and through your word to overcome them. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.